0: 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says this to Timothy, his son in the faith, he says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers. Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins led away by various lusts, always learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, Purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. One question I have for you this morning I'd like to look at. How are we to respond to opposition. How are we to respond to opposition? In Acts 13, when Paul and Barnabas preached the Gospel in Antioch, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the city leaders against them. And while Luke's account doesn't go into very many details, it is likely that they were beaten severely before they were thrown out of the city. And while being beaten for preaching the gospel is far more severe than any threat we face today, it is really only the beginning of the troubles that these men faced as they ministered together. Being forced to leave Antioch, we are told that they traveled east approximately 100 miles to the city of Iconium. But it's unlikely that Paul and Barnabas left Antioch alone. Joining them in their journey was a young man named Timothy who along with his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois had heard and received the gospel of Christ from Paul in Antioch. You know, Timothy is an interesting character in Scripture. One thing you'll notice right from the get-go, and we'll read these verses together, but the verses that we're going to look at this morning and the message is really focused on is in Acts chapter 14, and Timothy is not mentioned there at all. Timothy's background is not really spelled out in great detail in Scripture, but we know a few things about him. He was a young man. In Acts chapter 14, he was probably 18 to 20 years of age. He was the son of a Greek father and of a Jewish mother. We know that his mother and his grandmother taught him the Old Testament Scriptures from his childhood. And we also know that his grandmother and his mother both came to saving faith in Jesus Christ before Timothy his hometown was probably the city of Lystra which if you're following along in this series that we're doing as Paul and Barnabas traveled from Antioch in Acts 13 to now Iconium in chapter 14 the next city they will enter is the city of Lystra and that's probably Timothy's home city he and his grandmother and his mother probably traveled with Paul and Barnabas east from Antioch into, the home, into his home region near Lystra. And the reason that I bring this young man up here, even though Luke doesn't mention him, is that I believe we might be tempted to read about the ministry in Antioch and the persecution that arose and we might overlook Uh, the fruit that resulted from the preaching there. You see, from a human standpoint, it might seem like the ministry of Paul and Barnabas in Antioch was a failure. They had to leave Antioch before they finished planting a church. They weren't able to stay there as long as they would have liked to ground those new believers in the truths of Scripture. Later on, Paul would write the letter of Galatians back to warn these believers because they had been taken from the faith and been distracted by another gospel, he says. No doubt Paul and Barnabas would have liked to spend more time there training the, the disciples there in Antioch. And we might look at that and say, man, what a, what a tragedy that they, that they started the work there, but they were forced to leave before they finished. And we might overlook the faith of this young man, Timothy. as Timothy would go on to become a pastor and to become Paul's representative to the churches in the city of Ephesus, which was a major, major center of trade and industry. You see, one of the things that we see beginning to form in Paul's ministry uh, methodology is that instead of trying to go and preach in every little village and town, Paul focused on population centers, on centers of industry and trade, because he knew that the people who came through those cities would take the gospel with them, as believers in Christ. And so, if he could start churches in major cities where trade was 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 always coming and new people were coming from all over the Empire of Rome. He knew that the gospel would then go out from those bigger cities into all of the smaller towns and regions where he himself could not go. And so Paul placed Timothy there eventually in the city of Ephesus to accomplish that same purpose. To build up and strengthen the churches, to appoint pastors, to oversee the ministry as Paul's representative. This young man, Timothy, would go on to have a tremendous ministry that would multiply the impact that the Apostle Paul had. We see this throughout the New Testament. Paul was very good at this, taking young men, bringing them alongside of himself and teaching them and infusing them with his zeal and his, his knowledge of the truth so that they could then carry on the ministry. I think that if we're not careful, we might overlook that. We might consider the ministry in Antioch to be a failure. And I would say this, in spite of the many who turned away from the truth in Antioch, the ministry there was significant and successful. And as I said, even though Luke doesn't mention Timothy, we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says Timothy saw. That he observed the persecutions and the difficulties that Paul endured in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. And so Timothy was an eyewitness of these events. As Timothy traveled with Paul and Barnabas, he saw incredible signs and wonders that gave support to the truth and the power of the gospel. He also saw the disturbing violence which revealed the depth of the Jewish hatred for the Gentiles. And quite frankly, it also showed how strongly those who do not believe the Gospel will oppose anyone who does believe. Paul's words to Timothy are wise for us to consider today. What we read there in 2 Timothy 3, verse 14, he says, You must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 14. Let's see what it was that Paul and Barnabas did after they were so roughly treated and kicked out of the city of Antioch. What did they do? Well, they didn't sit down, give up, throw their hands up and say, well, I guess this, this preaching ministry just isn't for us. People don't really like us very much and they don't like to hear what we have to say. We might as well give up. They didn't do that. Instead, we we're told here that they entered the synagogue in Iconium, and they began to preach the gospel there. Let's look at what he says. Acts chapter 14 and verse 1. Luke says, "Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and the Greeks, believed." You see, I love this. At the end of chapter 13, they shook the dust off of their feet. And they left the city of Antioch and they traveled those hundred miles to the city of Iconium. And what did they do? They immediately went into the synagogue and began to preach the gospel. I think it's interesting and and frankly notable of Paul and Barnabas that they did not have any prejudice toward the Gentiles here. After their experience in Antioch, they might have considered limiting their initial presentation of the gospel to the Jews in order to avoid provoking the jealousy that they had seen in Antioch. Maybe that would have been a better way. You know, we, people are always looking for a better way, and churches are always looking for a better way to evangelize. And I'm not saying that it's bad for us to try and consider and look for opportunities and try to find where, it, where can we maximize our efforts and, and try to do the most that we can do. We should. But here they didn't go in and, and think to themselves, you know, maybe... Maybe we made a mistake in Antioch in preaching so broadly. Maybe we should just talk to the Jews first. Because we don't want to offend them by speaking to the Gentiles. So if we talk to the Jews first and win them over, then maybe we can can work through them to get to the Gentiles. Maybe that would be better. That's not what they did. Instead, they were committed to preaching the Gospel. But in a certain way, and this is what I love about what Luke says, they preached so that all men might believe. He says there in that verse, they they so spoke that a great multitude believed. You see, they were not trying to provoke a negative response. They sincerely hoped that the people of Iconium, both Jews and Gentiles, would turn to Christ in repentance and faith. And they didn't water down their message either as sometimes we may be tempted to do. Preaching a a nice moral message about being a better person, or maybe removing anything that might be offensive. In fact, uh, just on Thursday, Pauletta and I were up at Maranatha for the ministry recruitment day, and uh, we uh, had a really good time of of fellowship with some of the students up there. And and, uh, then what they do is they put on uh, some workshops for the pastors usually the ladies have kind of a fellowship thing and they didn't this year so the ladies were stuck coming to the pastors workshops and uh, yeah, too bad but uh, they had a workshop we went to and it was it was it, it was interesting because the the uh, dr. Brown I think it was uh, he's one of the music professors there and he was leading this workshop and he was talking about a church that he and his wife had visited and how they had uh, they, they, they had a series of different uh, services and they went to one of the services and it was a service that was just focused on outreach. But it was interesting, he said, because in that service they, they removed anything from the service that could possibly be considered offensive to anyone who might come. And so they didn't talk about it. They, 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 they didn't talk about the death of Christ, and they didn't talk about His blood, and they didn't talk about sin. Those words were never mentioned in the entire service. And he said because they were trying to do this service in such a way that anybody who came, nobody would ever feel uh, uncomfortable or in any way offended by anything that was said. You see, that's the temptation. And it wasn't a a church like ours. I'm just saying it was, but it was a church. I don't want to go into what church it was. but, But he was saying that, and I thought, you know, that's really a temptation that we face. We don't want to. We don't want to cause a problem. Nobody, nobody's interested here. Nobody here is interested in being offensive, right? In 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 being annoying or being, uh, you know, rude to people or or saying things that will make other people uncomfortable. Anybody like doing that? You like making other people uncomfortable? Well, Greg does. But that's it. <laughs> okay. Now, we don't like doing that. And so sometimes we might be tempted as we preach or as we teach or as we speak about the gospel. We might be tempted to, to try and word it in such a way that it won't be offensive. You know, I mean, the whole sin thing is just hard. People don't like to deal. Maybe we won't call it that. Maybe we'll call it something else. And maybe we'll find other terminology to use. Or, or maybe we'll just avoid certain topics that are uncomfortable. But Paul and Barnabas didn't do that. They didn't do that at all. They went and they preached. They preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now how do I know that? Because the, the message that they preached is the only message that inspires faith in the hearts of those who hear it the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're told there in verse 1 that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. And I got to be honest with you if they were just saying nice moral things or just kind of a watered-down message that would not have happened. The only way that those Jews and Gentiles were going to believe is if they heard the true message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And frankly, the message can be offensive. Because we're sinners and we have to be told that we're sinners, in need of salvation. So that we'll understand why Jesus had to come and die. And why it's such a great thing that He rose again. Because we need hope. We need forgiveness. We need cleansing. And we understand that that is what He was talking about here. When they preached, it was the gospel of Jesus Christ undiluted. To this audience, I love the fact that they didn't go in and, and, and go in in fear, afraid of what the Jews might do. Or go in prejudiced against the Gentiles. Instead, they preached openly and effectively. But you know, the Jews were not satisfied to simply disbelieve. And it does say that a large number of Jews and Greeks believed. But there were certainly many who didn't. Because verse 2, what we see is the unbelieving Jews... Luke says, stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. We see it happening all over again. What happened in Antioch? Now they're a hundred miles away and it's happening again. The Jews saw the message of the Gospel as a threat to their power and to their influence over the people. And so they responded almost immediately with hostility. Luke says that they stirred up the unbelieving Gentiles. And he says they poisoned their minds against the missionaries. This expression, poison their minds, literally means to make evil the souls of the Gentiles against them. And it refers not to a a reasoned criticism of the shortcomings of the Christian message as if there could be such a thing. And many people today claim to offer reasoned critiques of the claims of Christianity. That's not what this was. This was a personal attack on the messengers of God's grace. In the first century in Rome, in fact, under the reign of Nero, who likely was the Caesar who killed the Apostle Paul later on, a few decades after this time, there's a historian named Tacitus, and he wrote a description of the Christians... But Tacitus' description amounts to really nothing more than a slanderous personal attack. Let me read it to you what he said. He said the Christians are hated for their secret crimes, convicted of hatred for the human race, men of the worst character and deserving of the severest punishment. (laughs) And really, we can expect nothing less from those whose power and influence is threatened by the liberty of God's grace. I just read, actually, it, it, well, um, a very famous, uh, well-known uh, atheistic, uh, atheist author uh, wrote a book in which he claimed uh, that raising your children uh, and teaching them the truths of faith, the truths of Christianity, is essentially child abuse. And he argued that it was more severe than the abuse that many children have received at the hands of the priests in the Catholic Church. You don't think there's hostility and personal attack on people of faith today? Well, there is. And those who are threatened by the message of the Gospel will not respond with carefully thought out and reasoned arguments. When their power and influence is threatened, they respond with personal attack. That's what happened here and we should not be surprised if it happens to us. The real question though is this. What is an appropriate response to the unbeliever's hostility? Look at verse 3. we will read verse 2 again to make sure we understand the context. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore... They stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. (laughs) Paul and Barnabas grew more bold in their preaching, giving personal testimony to the reality of God's grace, which was then authenticated by the power of God. I already have said this, and we've noted this before, but there will always be opposition to whatever God is doing. And his servants must remain faithful rather than afraid. I find it interesting that Luke begins verse 3 with the word, therefore. We might expect Luke to say something along the lines of, well, the Jews rose up in opposition, and they poisoned the minds of the Gentiles. Therefore, Paul and Barnabas left Iconium and traveled to a nicer climate in Lystra where the people were friendlier or something like that. That's probably how we might, like if we were going to write this out, go, yeah, that's maybe what I would do. (laughs) That's not what he says. He says that Paul and Barnabas stayed in Iconium precisely because of the opposition that had sprung up. But why would they stay A long time, because that's what he indicates here. They stayed there a long time, speaking boldly. Why would they do that? Because of the opposition they faced. Wouldn't it be more natural to stay in a place where there is little opposition and you can preach without conflict? I think the, the answer to that question is that Paul and Barnabas were not seeing things from a human point of view. Really, they were seeing this from God's perspective. And rather than running from the opposition, they took the opposition as a sign. A sign that God's Word was having an impact. Remember what we saw last week? uh, That there are only two responses to the message of the Gospel? Well, there's another point that we need to keep in mind, and that is that the clear preaching of the Gospel forces men and women to choose whether to trust in Christ or to rebel against His authority. And so the increase in persecution was just an indicator that many people were coming face to face with the fact of their own sin and the grace of God in Christ Jesus to forgive that sin. And while some received this message with joy, others rejected it with anger. And so in spite of the opposition that was growing against them, Paul and Barnabas recognized that the proper response was to redouble their efforts. That the presence of the hostility from the Jews was a reason for Paul and Barnabas to spend more time, not less, in the city. And I think this is really the crux of the entire passage. The missionary's response to opposition was not to avoid it. It wasn't even to try and prevent it. Instead, they saw it as an opportunity to display the contrast between the anger of the Jews and the gospel of peace. What better way for them to display to all of the people in Iconium the reality of their faith and what the gospel is really about than to respond with love and concern for those who were hating them and who were violently oppressing them. Notice how they did this. I think it's important. The first thing that we're told here is that they spoke boldly in the Lord there in verse 3. This is really important. Harry Ironside, in commenting on this passage, said this, and I thought this was brilliant. He said, It's possible to preach so as to convert nobody. Let me say that again, and I'll read the rest of it. But he said this, It is possible to preach so as to convert nobody. you ever ever come across anybody who did that? (laughs) I I can think of a few. I won't name any names right off off at the moment, but I can think of a few who like to preach, but they preach in such a way that no one is going to be converted by the preaching. It's possible to preach so as to convert nobody. And, Ironside said, I think a lot of preachers have learned how to do that. In the first place, they do not preach the gospel. And it is the gospel that has the power of God unto salvation. And secondly, they do not preach in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is only the Holy Spirit who uses the gospel to save sinners. And so I think it's important that Luke tells us that they spoke boldly in the Lord. Paul and Barnabas were preaching in the Lord. They were not preaching in such a way that no one would be converted. No, they were depending on They were trusting in the power of God. They were preaching under His authority. The Lord was being lifted up. You see, that's what happens when we preach a message that's not really intended to convert anybody. What What we're really doing is we're elevating mankind. Because when we elevate God, and we lift up Jesus Christ before people, they, they do one of two things. They either receive Him by faith and repentance, crying out for forgiveness of sins and becoming His disciples, or they grow angry and reject Him. So if we hold up Christ, we get a response. But when we hold up men, oh, well, we can be comfortable with that. Because we can follow a man who's as flawed like we are. and We can compare ourselves to Him and feel okay but not with Jesus Christ. You see, they were preaching in the Lord. The second thing is that they spoke of God's grace. That's what Luke says here. What was it, the word that they were speaking? It was the word of His grace. I think that's important. This, this really speaks to the content of their message. What were they saying? They were talking about and speaking of the grace of God. God's grace is offered freely to sinners. But I should qualify that. God's grace is offered freely to sinners who will humble themselves, admit that they have offended the perfect standard of God's righteousness, and trust in Christ. And His death, His burial and resurrection, which provides forgiveness of sins and eternal life. This is the message that they were preaching. This is what they were speaking, the word of his grace. And the third aspect that's important here is they enjoyed God's support. Paul says here that they were speaking boldly in the Lord, and then it says, Who was bearing witness? Well, that who there is referring to God, the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, and granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. The wording of this this is very important because we understand that this is the one thing that we have no control over. You see, we we can depend on the Lord, we can preach in the Lord, and we can preach the word of God, the grace of God, but we have no control over what God is going to do. We can't command it. We can't do signs and wonders to convince others of the truth. And neither could Paul and Barnabas, by the way. The way this is worded is very important. The signs and wonders were granted to them to do. Were granted to their hands to do. Their hands were simply the medium through which God worked to prove His word was true. And we can't command God's support for our witnessing efforts. God's not a puppy that we can lead around with a leash and make Him do what we want, make Him do tricks for us. It doesn't work that way. He doesn't work that way. We would be foolish to think so. There are many, though, today who, unfortunately, have bought into that kind of thinking. That somehow God can do tricks for us if we demand it or if we just ask in the right way. That's not what Paul and Barnabas were doing these signs and wonders that happened, these were not things they were in control of. They were simply the instruments that God was using to accomplish His will. But I will say this, though we cannot command God's support for our witnessing efforts, God never fails to prove His Word true when we are faithful to preach it. We don't command Him and we can't force Him to do what we want, when we want. But if we will preach the Word of God, if we will exalt Jesus Christ before others, He will prove the truth of His Word. He always does. Most often, it's the changed life of a sinner who's come to repentance, which provides the strongest evidence to prove the truth of the Gospel. And actually, I think... Again, Luke doesn't give us all the details, but I would suggest to you that probably the strongest evidence that people saw in Iconium was people's lives being transformed by the power of the grace of God. You see, when men and women are set free from the slavery of sin and the stranglehold of religion, they come into fellowship with the Almighty God who made them. And that is a miracle. And I have no doubt that it was obvious to all the people of Iconium that God was working when men and women who had been enslaved to idolatry and demon worship began to experience the true liberty of Christ for the first time, when love and joy and peace and patience and thankfulness took root in their hearts, replacing years of hatred and anger and conflict and selfishness and discontentment. These are the signs that we should expect When we faithfully preach the gospel of Christ. And even as the light of the gospel began to shine more brightly. Throughout the city men and women reacted very strongly to the offer of God's grace. Look there at verse 4. It says the multitude of the city was divided. Part sided with the Jews and part with the Apostles. John Pollock in his biography of the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Thus Iconium, with its dust and winds and the strange little twin peaks that stick up like pyramids, became the first place in the world to see on any large scale a pattern that would be repeated throughout history. If men and women begin to live like Jesus Christ, their enemies blacken their names. You see, there's no middle ground When it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as the days continued, the city was split over it. This division did not force Paul and Barnabas to leave, but instead it offered a fertile field for the gospel to take root. The ministry, the missionaries continued to minister, preaching the gospel day after day, teaching those who believed the doctrines of the faith. It wasn't until there was a threat of mob violence that that caused Paul and Barnabas to leave Iconium. And it's interesting because they left in order to preach the gospel in cities and towns which had not previously heard. it. Let's look at the rest of the passage. The city, we're told in verse 4, was split almost the entire city. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. In Antioch, the missionaries had been hauled before the authorities and expelled from the city. But in Iconium, the way Luke writes, this indicates that the magistrates agreed to turn a blind eye to a rush of violence. In fact, that's the, uh, the word there, violent attempt. It has the idea of a rush, a mob that formed. And when Paul and Barnabas became aware of the threat, they escaped to a neighboring region where the leaders of Iconium had no jurisdiction. It's important for us to understand that Paul and Barnabas were not afraid to suffer persecution for their preaching especially at the hands of the legal authorities, and that's what took place at the end of chapter 13. They came under the authority of the legal authorities in the city of Antioch, and they were beaten. One interesting note, and it's really not related in any necessary way, but I thought it was interesting. We know the Apostle Paul was a citizen of Rome. And therefore, no Roman citizen could be arrested and could be beaten and expelled from a Roman city in the way that he were in Antioch without official charges being pressed and without having the opportunity to defend himself. There's no indication in Acts 13 that Paul did that. Every indication is that Paul was linked with Barnabas and suffered whatever fate Barnabas suffered. I think it says something about Paul. Because Barnabas, not being a citizen of Rome, wouldn't have been able to escape the persecution. Paul could have but I believe probably chose not to because whatever Barnabas was going to endure, he would endure by his side. And see, they were mistreated by the authorities and they took it. No crying out, no attempts to prevent it, noted at all in the passage. This is a different situation. Here we just have an unruly mob that wants to kill them. And they were not interested in suffering the hands of that mob. Now, it was not always possible for them to avoid such things and we'll see in the very next paragraph of Acts 14 that they didn't escape the next mob that came looking. But the point is they didn't avoid persecution per se but they did take necessary precautions to protect their own lives when they had opportunity to do so. I think it's important. I want to understand the nuance of this because God does not call us to be reckless or foolish. But he does call us to be willing to face penalties and even death when we must without fear. Paul and Barnabas did not escape Iconium out of fear. Their goal was to continue to preach the gospel to all who would hear. The persecution they faced did not threaten their resolve to preach. (coughs) But sometimes it did make them look for new places in which to preach. So the question I want to look at here as we wrap things up today is, what does the example of Paul and Barnabas mean for us today? Well, I think it's very simple and this is not complicated or difficult. Very simple principle, we ought to be resolved to continue without wavering in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I came across this quote that was from a book written by the longtime UCLA basketball coach John Wooden. And he said this, he said, in gameplay it has always been my philosophy that patience will win out. By that I mean patience to follow our game plan. If we do believe in it, we will wear the opposition down and we'll get to them. If we break away from our style, however, and play their style, we're in trouble. And if we let our emotions command the game rather than our reason, we will not function effectively. I constantly caution our team, play your game. Eventually, if you play your game, stick to your style Class will tell in the end. He says, this does not mean that we will always outscore our opponent, but it does ensure that we will not beat ourselves. I think it's very important for us to understand that we need to be willing to continue with with faithfulness and perseverance the course that is set before us. Not wavering out of fear or frustration or discouragement, but be willing to continue. The Apostle Paul said something very similar. Maybe John Wooden was thinking of this when he wrote that. I don't know. But in fact, he said something very similar to the people of Iconium when he wrote the letter of Galatians and sent it back to them. He said this, And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see, when we're tempted to quit or change our course, let us remember that we have been called to patiently and faithfully serve as ambassadors for Christ in a hostile world. When opposition comes, and it will come if we're living and speaking for Christ, do not lose heart. When the results of your ministry are not clear, We're not as spectacular as someone else's. Do not lose heart. Remember that you are nothing more than a steward of the grace of God. And Scripture says it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. So let us continue serving others. Let us continue doing good. Let us continue preaching the Gospel without fear or compromise. And let's trust in God's strength and wisdom to protect us and produce fruit as we love and serve others, sharing with them the words of life. I want to close this morning and share with you just a few lines from the hymn Speed Thy Servants, written by Thomas Kelly. He says this, In the midst of opposition, let them trust, O Lord, in Thee. When success attends their mission, let Thy servants humblest be. Never leave them till thy face in heaven they see. There to reap in joy forever, fruit that grows from seed here sown. There to be with Him who never ceases to preserve His own. And with gladness, give the praise to Him alone.